no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World, where we have not been subpoenaed by Mueller yet. But it could happen any day. That's right. Um, I haven't been actually answering the door with those people. You know, they knock. Some of them have just the ties on and come in pairs. And some of them have something that clearly looks like a legal document in their arm. And I just don't answer the door (laughs) because... They don't, uh, and I would refuse anyway, or I would start the day refusing, change my mind in the middle of the day, and then spend the end of the day drunk and on television talking about why they're bothering me. Not that that would ever happen in real life. I I saw this tweet of someone who took a picture of Robert Mueller on the streets in D.C. and was like, apparently this is a big deal. I didn't realize that like he hasn't been like physically seen in a long time <laughs> because that was being like retweeted by uh, various people who cover the white house, including someone who's like, yes, that's, that's definitely him. I get, you know, a, I, I run a website where we, where we find people in DC and I haven't seen him in months. So this is a big deal to actually find him that he's, that he's actually a, a real human being still. Uh-huh. That yeah, that he's a, they actually has to do things like eat food and right take the bus occasionally I'm go sure outside. He never takes the bus. I'm sure he gets driven around. No, but, uh, but you know, I mean, the but of course these disappearances feed into people's conspiracy theories. Right, like you know, he's actually being slowly replaced by you know automaton decoy copies of him. Right, and so even if you did see Mueller on the street, it might not be Mueller. It could be a faux Mueller. Or something like that. Yeah, it could be one of his, uh, you know, one of one of the people who are supposed to be him in life. The um, and conspiracy theories are much on my mind because of a story that appeared on March seventh from Sutherland Springs, Texas. And I'll just give you the AP beginning of it. Two people have been arrested after appearing at the Texas church where more than two dozen worshipers were gunned down and claiming the attack was staged. The pastor of First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, southeast of San Antonio, tells the San Antonio Express News that the pair appeared Monday and claimed the shooting was fabricated by the U.S. government. Pastor Frank Pomeroy, whose 14-year-old daughter died in the November 5th shooting, says they claimed his daughter never existed. So Jeez. this is Sandy Hook, you know, conspiracy theory thinking all over again. The the people, um, uh, Jody Mann and Robert Usury, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and I kind of hope I'm not because it's sort of like to hurt his feelings if that's possible, <laughs> um, are, you know, kind of an extension of this conspiracy thinking that's become really kind of problematic because... Uh, in Sandy Hook, there are some of these conspiracy theorists who are confronting the parents still on a regular basis, claiming their kids never existed. Um, and then you know, you've got that. You've got the um, you know the crisis actor accusations, and then you know this appearing. And uh, it, it's it's just you know kind of an indication that there are some people who lock themselves into a corner and kind of look at the reality from there. And there again, they're so perfectly self-contained that there is absolutely no way to rationally get them out of it, right? Um, 
because it is it's it's a conspiracy and any time that you are uh, attempting to criticize the conspiracy you are in fact the enemy agent. The, you yeah, are yeah. yeah you are what they want you to do what they want you to think has this been picked up um is this a story that's sort of uh, being picked up in mainstream media or something that's being uh, propelled in any other ways or this, I, I, this was a pretty, I mean, I, it came up on a, on a Twitter feed as I was looking because somebody was mentioning it just because of the, the cruelty that's involved in, you know, harassing someone whose child was killed, uh, to me is just amazing. Um, just in terms of like, just sort of basic level of human decency. (laughs) It's just a, you know, just not acceptable. Even if I didn't like this guy, the fact that he recently lost his 14 year old daughter, um, should I think evoke some kind of a sense of of just recognizing somebody's, you know, uh, grief? Yeah. So. Um, I'd I'd really be interested to talk to a conspiracy theorist scholar, um, someone who who could walk me through whether it is through social media or through other forms of media. How how is is there a specific way in which these type of stories develop or at least what's the thought process of someone who comes up with this theory are there certain scenarios which they always walk through um like what one of them being for instance the lack of existence of this person right yeah there's well there i mean i think that there are some characteristics and i am i'm not a conspiracy theorist scholar but but i actually do have over many years read quite a bit about it um i think i may have mentioned on the podcast before robert anton wilson who was a favorite writer of mine who in uh, 19 in the late 1960s wrote the illuminatus trilogy which was um i think they were published between 68 or three novels that were published i think between 68 and 70 or something like that. Uh, he had been an editor at Playboy, and he was also kind of involved in um, uh, um, obsidian religion. He was a kind of a Satanist and uh, had been very interested in Aleister Crowley and, and then ended up writing this trilogy of novels with, uh, with co-written with Robert Shea, a science fiction author, that basically talk about this global conspiracy. and was kind of feeding into the global conspiracies that developed in the middle of the 20th century um, that would start with sort of European banking interests being this sort of the puppet masters behind the scenes and then connect to these sort of like long scale, deep, rich veins of paranoia. Um, and these conversations that you have with people usually start from take a dollar bill, look at the back, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And what do you see on the back of the dollar bill? You see the triangle, the eye and the pyramid. In fact, that's the name of one of the, uh, of one of the books in the, in the trilogy is the eye and the pyramid, which is connected to the Illuminatus conspiracy, which, and so if you flip the dollar bill over again and you think you're looking at a picture of George Washington, you're actually looking at a picture of Adam Weishaupt, who was the guy who, after they killed Washington, they replaced him with, and that's the guy who actually was the president at the time it's tied into the masons it's tied into the rosicrucians it's just you know so it becomes this whole behind the scenes thing and my only sense is what you know like what would motivate you what would motivate one to kind of buy into conspiracy theories and it's partially just finding the the true surface of life to be such a frustrating um unsatisfying explanation for things it's like you know i mean it's just sort of like you go that's not that's not good that doesn't explain things i want something better and deeper and and something that and particularly something that might explain 
somebody being marginalized, right? Somebody who doesn't feel like they're being paid enough attention sure. to. Or, so anyway, that's my that's been my thinking about it. I think it's it's really fascinating for for most people in this country. Of course, it's the the glories of reveling in the the Kennedy assassination right. that becomes kind of the touchstone for a lot of conspiracy theories that tumble out. Yeah. So. So anyway, the yeah. So and uh, there, in fact, there was an interview last week with um, a person who has a book about her childhood. It's a, been a very well-reviewed book uh, called Educated. Have you heard of this book? No. It's um, uh, it's by uh, let me think, see if I've got the right one here. Um, yeah, a, Tara Westover is the author, and uh, they interviewed her on Fresh Air, and it was a really interesting interview because she grew up in a uh, in Idaho, and her parents were conspiracy theorists who thought that either Satan and you know the end times or the American government, which are apparently kind of equal, were about to come. So their goal was to be off the grid as much as they possibly could, which they were. She didn't even have a birth certificate or actually exist in any kind of legal form until she was seventeen. They didn't go to public wow. schools. They were, you know, so so her so this this memoir that she's written is about having grown up in this family where. You know, they were um, the the dad had a, a, a steel recovery business and actually had her in some very dangerous situations when she was a, a kid. Um, lots of tumult in the family. Anyway, it sounds like a really kind of fascinating uh, having grown up inside of sort of a conspiratorial context. Um, so anyway, I think that's probably an, another angle on it that's kind of interesting. Have you ever had a moment in your life where someone tried to give you their JFK assassination theory? <laughs> yes. Have you? Yeah. In fact, I, I had it happen to me one time. Um, I was working the front desk in an apartment complex. A guy walked in. Who oh, was, no, you have to start with, there I was, minding my own business. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Uh, what turned into like a three-hour conversation of a guy who happened to be visiting someone at the complex who walked into uh, the the main visitor sort of community area and then sat down and proceeded to tell me his theory about how you know how JFK was assassinated and, and what was what was the substance of his theory I don't remember uh, a, a ton of it I do remember that you know he believed that uh, Johnson was behind it and he wa- he had ways of proving it through various artifacts that he had found in uh, uh, Johnson's library in Austin, Texas. If, if I'm, if I'm, I hope I'm not mistaken there. Um, but that, that, that was, that was the basis of it. Um, so I, and I, I can't remember the specific details, but I think one thing that's interesting about hearing those stories is, you know, uh, that's, that, that's a certain situation where certainly it seems like you want to, you want, you, you want to understand what you don't understand. And when you listen to someone who sounds so convinced about their their way of thinking about it it's it's easy to buy into the magic of it i think yeah the the other thing is that you know once you're so when you're in that conversation which is you know usually again it's like an enclosed sphere right um in, in a way uh you you start you're 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 so preoccupied with gosh does that make sense is that detail true right. blah 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 and and what's i think maybe more important is to think about how does somebody end up sort of thinking like that like deciding that there is a grand conspiracy 
that that um, so it's sort of like you get caught up in the details and you kind of lose the forest, which is just the, how these pictures get constructed, what kind of story is being told, and what the logic of it is. Yeah. Um, and that unfortunately can often disguise things that really are going on um, in terms of. Like my real no, but the uh, but the idea of things like soft power working internationally, um, getting involved in elections in other places, right? Um, In fact, I would think that one thing you could do with the whole Russian thing that's going on is if you started coloring it as an an incredibly elaborate conspiracy theory, you could probably. You know, probably do more damage than just saying it's fake news. But what yeah. do I know? Yeah, about something like that. <laughs> uh, did you happen to read the Quincy Jones uh, piece that was in Vulture? I did not. Okay, you have to read it because he um, he he says some amazingly ridiculous, far fetched <laughs> claims in it, including he has his own JFK assassination theory. So really? it's oh. a really in depth piece. I think Quincy Jones is at that age where, you know, you're just allowed to let him say whatever he wants to. Right. Um, yeah. you know, and he makes some, uh, some, some major, uh, criticisms, uh, and claims of Michael Jackson for like stealing, uh, specific material himself. And, um, which is really fascinating considering how, like, how, like an intellectual property theft or, yeah, yeah, ba- yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, how um, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell by the way he's talking about it, but he sort of makes the claims that um, there are people that that wrote pieces of Michael Jackson songs that um, you know, they should have got a lot more credit for it than they really did, and uh-huh. he he ends up basically taking it from everyone. But anyways, um, it's it's hard to even talk about it because I don't really want to propagate some yeah. of the stuff that that he says in the article. But it's really fascinating to read, particularly well, if you're a fan of Quincy. Well, Jones, no, but so. I think I, I think what I'm what I'm guess suggesting and maybe arguing for is thinking about it as almost a genre that yeah. you can kind of investigate. How do things work? How do yeah. the contours inside of a conspiracy theory work? How do they end up being kind of these self-contained explanations for you know what for for what's going on that are you know, that you're sort of, you've figured out you're on the inside of. Um, and, you know, they just become very, very kind of seductive in that way. Yeah. So I think understanding how the stories work is, is you know, probably a good strategy. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's the uh, the premise for our future media literacy courses. 16 lectures um, in which the final is you have to tell me the one that was true. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was with some uh, some faculty, and as an exercise in, uh, this was fascinating actually, and um, I have to give credit to Keegan Longwheeler for for working on this. But we were with a group of faculty, and we were playing the two truths and a lie game, mm. which was fantastic because when you put that together, um, you know, you have to sort of think about how credible the 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 thing is, right? So you've got three things that are aligned to each other, and everybody else in the room knows that two of them are true, one of them's false. But sometimes the true things really do sound kind of wacky, right? Right. So it's it's I think it's an interesting game, an interesting exercise to kind of go through uh, thinking about what makes something credible, what makes something uh, believable for other people. Sure. Which is I think what, what what's your wacky true fact of your life? Wacky true fact of my life. So, so when you played true truth, truth and a lie, like you're saying, like you probably want to come up with something that's actually true, but just sounds completely unbelievable so did you did you share one with the group well uh gosh i'm trying to remember because it was a it was kind of a short list yeah <laughs> and then went away when we were done with the exercise i mean the thing i mentioned before in the podcast the gorilla channel thing was one of my mm. one of my favorites of the recent past yeah. of something that i just really wanted to be true sure. 
which, you know, I think was the key to it is just sort of, you believe, oh, I'll tell you one, and I won't tell you who this involves, but it involves okay. somebody, no, actually, I'm not going to say that. Okay, that's fine. Because <laughs> it falls under embarrassing personal stories, but sometimes you'll find things online like videos that lead you to believe something exists that doesn't, mm. um, you know, uh, uh, films and, and projects and things like that, yeah. and because the because the internet is such a perfect vehicle for the distribution of these things. Um, so we all fall prey to them all the time. So you had mentioned in our last podcast that you had an interest in talking about design thinking. And I, first I'd be curious to know, you know, what's, what's your background with it? Where have you heard about it and what made you interested in well, wanting to I, talk about it? More? I think that I had heard it mentioned as a way of approaching, um, uh, uh, um, a process or a, or a kind of simultaneous set of skills that somebody could use uh, to help solve problems. And it was pretty, pretty much a foundation in something like uh, the MIT Media Lab, for example, which I think is a fascinating organization where um, design thinking, I think, is employed to develop technological interfaces with human experience. Um, and what got, you know, what was interesting, I'm always, I've always been interested in engineering and design. Like, what is it that makes, when you pick up an object, what is it that makes it like just feel right? Sure. You know? uh, how did it get to that? Or, you know, on the other hand, like you pick up something and you have to use it, but it's totally wonky and your head goes, God, I wish, you know, like, for example, my current least favorite thing in the world is the way that you have to enter characters on a TV to make it search for something. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> It is really yeah. the wonkiest, most poorly designed interface, and they're trying to, of course, eliminate that by being able to do voice commands, right. so which does cut through. But then you have to make sure the machine doesn't misunderstand you. Yeah. So it's yeah. always funny when we're sitting at home and something that sounds like the word Alexa comes out of the TV, <laughs> and she's over on the other side of the room going, "I don't know about that." <laughs> so yeah. anyway, yeah. So that's what got me. Okay. Uh, what got me interested in it. And, and I know it's something that is also important to um, public relations and advertising and, um, and those fields. So that's why I thought that maybe we would talk about that. It's, it's interesting. It's become sort of a hot topic to talk about. So design thinking, um, you can kind of boil it down to a, a process, and I would call it even like an iterative process, where the, the, the idea is that um, uh, on, on, in its most basic level, First, you're designing towards an end user um, or a consumer, however you want to define that. But um, it's usually a stage that has to do with with what they call developing empathy, um, sort of out of em empathizing with an end user, then start trying to develop a problem that they probably have, and then trying to de develop a solution towards that. Um, and constantly iterating this, this, this solution and kind of coming back to your original end user and having them kind of define, is this, is this right or is this wrong? And there's a lot of, a lot of prototyping that happens. So it's not, it's not a, a very quick, um, put something together, uh, in an end product form and before you get really any feedback. Um, it's, it's, it probably started, uh, probably to pick up speed, um, fairly quickly with a, a company called IDEO. Are you familiar with IDEO? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, they're they're a consulting company who's helped out with a lot of projects. But um, you you hear the so design thinking has gone. It, it, it's it's I think it's a much broader idea 
um, than than other terms. And it, that's the, that's the interesting thing about design thinking is this idea of developing quick, developing over and over in an iterative design process, developing in some sort of human centered way or user centered way. Um, you you hear this used. Um, uh, uh, there's a lot of different ways to describe it. Um, coming from having a graduate degree in education, um, we've called it action based research, and that's mm-hmm. something that's developed you know since the uh, since the 60s, um, you might have heard it like in a more technical term of like agile design, which is a little bit more um, computer based uh, design process. Or if, if you're from the business world, you probably heard of lean startup or lean launchpad, which is the idea of an iterative process towards building a business. Um, or you might just have heard it called brainstorming, you know, right. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, like there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of approach um, thinking about this this type of type of design itself. Um, I, well, I like the the two things that that I found really engaging about it was that it does start with this notion of empathy. Yeah, which is uh, you know the, the the best I understand it is a way of reading the needs of the group of people that you're trying to affect a change in. Right, exactly. So if we were to do something like this at an education institution, I think people get get the start of the process wrong. Like they might, you know, they might think of, they might want to start with a problem like, you know, how, how could we um, rewrite our curriculum, right? And uh, and we use a design thinking process to sort of think think through our curriculum. Whereas if they just went and talked to their students, what they might find out is the curriculum is actually fairly fine, right? Or maybe not. We don't, you don't really know. Um, but you've, you've, you've tried, you've tried to stick a problem before really talking to your end user. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the way I've used it, and I, I will also say that there are, there are a lot of people that have sort of came out against design thinking. A lot of it's because it's, it's, it's became fairly commercialized pretty quickly. Um, and, and, and as all things that seem easy and kind of bite sunk chunks and, and processes that have, have been well codified, you know, some do, um, also projects that happen to, you know, involve specific institutions. So Stanford has what they call the Stanford D school, their design school, which is multidisciplinary and you can do, um, you know, uh, weekend workshops, you know, become a, a certified in design thinking or take, classes as an undergrad there as well. Um, it's in a, a, a critical piece that I would point to, um, which was which published recently um, by a guy named Lee Vinsel from uh, Virginia Tech, an assistant professor uh, in science, technology, and society. He has a, has a piece you can find on medium.com, and I'll link to it in the show notes, called uh, Design Thinking is Kind of Like Syphilis, It's Contagious and Rots Your Brains. <laughs> um, but, but, that but, doesn't but, sound like a recommendation. No, exactly. no, it's not really. Um, and, uh, you know, as an academic, uh, you know, as, as a critic, I think we can we can poke at that as well. But it's because people are starting to think of, you know, there's been some articles that have come out in like the Chronicle of Higher Education of like, you know, can we can we redesign higher education through a designing, you know, uh, design thinking process or is design thinking the new liberal arts? Um, are a couple of different articles that have that have probably taken the idea of design thinking a little bit too far, you know. But I've used it in my classroom as a way, and I think it's this is where it's best utilized, is to teach sort of non-designers a process for how thinking through design. Mm-hmm. And thinking through that, you're not, um, the you know, the, a difference between um, what we would do in 
strategic communications and advertising or public relations. And what you would do in, say, art is that we're designing to, 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 to affect somebody in a very specific way, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and with, with obviously a lot of strategy in mind. And so I've used it as a way, as a process for students to be able to think through. It would um, seem like one of the potentially toxic applications of it, just, you know, and what I've read about it and in the conversations we've had before talking about it would be if it drifts too much into uh, like a consumer metaphor. Like right. It seems to have more validity when there is something of an equal playing field between the people doing the engineering design and the people to whom they're trying, with whom they're absolutely. trying to empathize, right? Rather than thinking of a producer consumer relationship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a really good way to get students, um, you know, or novices who don't have design, design process or design backgrounds to be thinking about a more, user-centered design approach or human-centered design approach and not just necessarily moving into designing something and getting it to finally work. Um, And from a media perspective, and I'll speak specifically from my background from an advertising perspective, you know, it's... It's kind of the approach we we take now with writing copy, with doing advertising, simply because how it used to be is um, you would put out your print ad, right? And it it could be potentially months before you really got any feedback into how successful that advertisement was. Um, So you had to have everything sort of locked in uh, before you actually put it out to print. And so we're talking... It could be six months to a year before you really have a full understanding of how it. Well, now with digital advertising, you can write copy, you can put it out there, you can do enough analytics on it to really understand what's working and what's not, and kind of iterate the the copy as it is, and constantly change this. Now we've seen this in journalism as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen uh, there's have we talked to someone? I think we've had someone on here talk about. Um, you know, a, uh, a a Twitter bot that will show you every time, like the New York Times has changed, like the headline of something, mm-hmm. right? And so we're seeing uh, a lot of news entities now do like A-B testing on specific headlines and sort of refining it throughout the day to really see what sort of drives traffic towards that, which is essentially taking an advertising approach towards um, to sort towards more traditional media. So, mm-hmm. um, but that's, you know, that, that, that's essentially what design thinking is. And, and one thing that I kind of bothers me is I, I don't I don't I'm not a huge fan of the term like solutions because solution to me seems like an endpoint. I like things having like a more iterative process where mm-hmm. um you know you're not you you've never really solved a problem but you are thinking about getting closer towards mm-hmm. eventually solving that problem. Yeah, so. yeah, sort of in the flow of change. I think that you know one of the things that um <clears throat> that I think is an in- interesting alternative uh, that are, are a larger context that I was taking a look at when we were just talking about this was a piece that was put together by Ian Goncher called Beyond Design Thinking, an Incomplete Design Taxonomy. And what he was trying to do with this was sort of go, it's almost really more of a historical walk through different ways of, of kind of iterations of design thinking. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of very reflexive in the same sense. So it's sort of like which kind of design thinking. So like, for example, getting away from the, the, the consumer metaphor for defining all of it would be a strength just because it, it because of the power relationship it establishes. But he, um, he talks in this piece, which we'll put a link to on the, on the site also about the notion of human-centered design, uh, which was popular in the 1980s, based on a book by Don Norman called The Design of Everyday Things. Great book. Yeah, in which he urged designers to consider the user experience throughout the entire design process rather than employing top-down engineering strategies. 
Uh, and then Goncher talks about participatory design, uh, which he says, has, and this is, I think, interesting history, has its roots in the Scandinavian trade unions of the 60s and 70s. Um, with an explicit political dimension, it aspires to democratize the design process, blurring the distinction between the designer as expert and the user as expert, which I think is a really kind of mm-hmm. interesting way to think about it. Um, and then Critical Design, uh, which was um, based on a book by Anthony Dunn and Fiona Robbie in the late 90s called Speculative Everything, which I have every intention of reading. I have a little time to actually read a book. Um, but they basically, uh, the, the way that Goncher describes it, sets up an opposing dialectic between two types of design, critical design and affirmative design. Affirmative design is problem solving with design framed as a process that provides answers in the service of industry for how the world is. And critical design on the other side of the page is characterized as problem finding with design framed as a medium that asks questions in the service of society for how the world could be. Um, And attached to that, then, Goncher has this chart of of binaries. And what I thought was really interesting about it is, you know, how is the problem constructed and identified? Um, At what point, because it it connects to um, something that's very important in the history of critical pedagogy, which was the work of Paulo Freire, um, who thought that problematization was a very critical part of the education process, identifying how education is trying to solve a particular uh, um, issue. So it was a problem-seeking, problem-constructing. Sure. And then the idea was that both teacher and student who were in positions of being able to exchange places would work on the problem together. And you can kind of see that through some of these notions in, in both this you know thing that developed in the trade unions in the 60s and 70s and then critical yeah. design that it, it actually has kind of a neutralize, an attempt to neutralize the power relationship between the designers and the, the people who for whom the designs are being constructed. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of a lot of what you're trying to do and obviously I don't think that you can completely eliminate this. So I don't know if it's it's the the, the right approach but it's to try to take your biases out of the design process, you know, and really try to be designing on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that always brings up the famous quote that may or may not have been said by Henry Ford, you know, the if I would have asked my customers what they really wanted I would have, if I would design what they really wanted, I you know would have designed a faster horse. Right. So, yeah. Um, well, we all know that Henry uh, that unfortunately Henry Ford was uh, sympathized with some of the wrong people, <laughs> had a uh, kind of colored past, and I don't think he necessarily sympathized often with the people that he was you know, designing things for because they were also his employees. Oddly enough. Yeah. So he had a, a bit of a kind of circular thing going on. Yeah, but I, the the other thing that I think it, I think it's fun to do it whether you. You know, apply it in a real world setting or not is it's really kind of fun to think through because design thinking is not like designing just an end product. Um, it's not about designing a website or a poster or something like that. I mean, a lot of time, the questions are usually really big. Um, so like some famous like ideal ones that are product based are like how 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 would you redesign the shopping cart or how would you redesign a wallet you know and we're thinking about sort of the use cases for something like that but then we're thinking about it from a more societal um equitable standpoint you know how how would we redesign um food distribution you know throughout the the state or something mm-hmm. like that would be something that you could also use sort of a design thinking approach to to really kind of poke at well how how is this currently um um how, how are people currently working towards uh, solving this issue if they have this personally, you know, and what's a, what's an easier way to be thinking about how we get there. So, well, he ends up just in this taxonomy that he puts together ends up the last two, which I think are, 
are actually kind of fascinating to think about. I think falls into some of our mutual interests are speculative design and design fiction. Mm. And this is where, like what you were just saying, um, essentially um, fictional processes that involve world building, for example, or, you know, the, the imaginary technologies, which in some cases eventually become real things. So, you know, Arthur C. Clarke writing about satellites before there were satellites or, um, or the uh, constructions that happen in the book Neuromancer that essentially tell us what the World Wide Web is going to be like before there was such a thing, um, which are um, kind of interesting. Speculative design uh, is explicitly oriented, so Goncher writes, toward future scenarios. Uses scenarios are an important method found in many of these design strategies. And then design fiction is explicitly science fiction related. Throughout much of the late 20th century, early 21st century, science fiction has given us a glimpse of the future that did not exist. Design fiction draws on the power of storytelling for making speculations concrete. I think those are really interesting ways to think about it too. Um, And it gives a, a kind of um, um, materiality to the imagination component of it, which is sort of like saying, where are we and where do we want to be and how can we use what we've learned to actually get there, you know, and, and, uh, has a, it has a kind of very, to me, a very attractive optimism. Mm-hmm. Like we can actually solve some of these problems if we put our minds to it and yeah. use our, our, use what we can do to, to change the circumstances to make misery less. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I I have such conflicting opinions on it because I I think sometimes it can can uh, prioritize sort of our own ideas or new ideas versus what has or hasn't worked within history sometimes, and so um, maybe sometimes not not leaning enough on sort of historical research. At the same time, particularly from an educator perspective, um, it's a really healthy approach to get students outside of their own bubble. Um, one thing that I've done for the past few years is like I will judge a business capstone final project, which is usually um, for the, the professor that I usually judge for is that the, he wants them to start a franchise within Norman. And so they do the researches or they research on franchises, um, top, you know, top hundred new franchises and then do some market research and try to try to place it within Norman. Um, and uh, one thing that that he reiterates and then i think they've moved further away from is often students will think that they are the only consumer that exists in a college town you know (laughs) um and so uh we see like a lot of pitched uh like i don't know taco places and uh things that are specifically geared towards a college student that may not be able to exist 12 months out of the year uh sufficiently from a financial perspective so it does it does a really good job of getting people out there and, and doing things like uh, consumer interviews or customer interviews or end user interviews, however you want to you know pr- approach those, um, which I think is the ultimately one of the biggest factors what we're trying to do in education, which is expose students to ideas and to people in which they wouldn't have otherwise if they didn't get the experience of uh, a higher education institution. I you know um, I, I I don't want to darken the the thought of that, but uh, yesterday at South by Southwest, Betsy DeVos spoke. Mm. I don't know if you saw anything about this, but uh, there there was actually a really charming reaction from the educational community because at the beginning of her presentation, she essentially implied that the structure of the classroom hasn't, hasn't changed. changed. Yeah, I've 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 heard oh. this from so many. <laughs> I, it was from I, yeah. 
It's it's you know so frustrating. It is really frustrating because you know there are these parallel images of like a classroom, almost from like a um, an ephemeral film from the 1950s. You know where everybody's sitting in rows and it's about Johnny in the back who can't behave. Blah blah blah. Whatever. Um, and sat next to an updated color picture of the same circumstance. And and what was funny was on Twitter, all these teachers going, has she been in a classroom yeah. in the last 25 years? Yeah. This isn't what we do. You know, I mean, and even, I have to say, even the, I, I've seen um, some of the uh, pharmaceutical commercials and you know how they usually do some kind of little thing to distract you while they start listing the side effects of the. Yeah. And in one of them, there is this guy who is engaging with his class on building these little race cars that have balloons to help them move along. And he's talking to them about it and interacting. And then he calls them all up to the front. And it's just like, so while they're listing all the side effects of this medication that's going to kill you or make you crazy or whatever, uh, you're seeing kind of a picture of like the interactive classroom of today. Yeah. You know, to the extent that teachers have sufficient supplies and support to actually do it are just doing amazing interactive things. It's just not at all this yeah, image that she brought to her South by Southwest thing it would have been a legitimate yeah. complaint in 1962. But. Yeah. Um, so I, I very well remember being a kid and hearing my parents particularly say, you know, we, when we were students, we were definitely not doing what you were doing. Right. Um, and here I am now uh, years later with my own kids in school, having the same exact thoughts like their educational experience is very, very different from me. Um, and the way that I've anecdotally noticed it is um, uh, teachers now, for, for, for good reasons and for bad reasons, um, or I don't want to say bad, but you know, not, not necessary, um, uh, find stuff all over the place to become uh to become uh educational material yeah where i think in higher education we're much more fixated on like the textbook and one specific text or a couple different readings um they're way more creative about the the places in which they they pull in things that they see can be valuable curriculum for their mm -hmm. students and um you know and my my daughter gets um, who's, who's just now starting into her, her second year within public schools, you know, is experiencing way more than probably, um, if she was just set on curriculum that was standardized from no child left behind or whatever it is that mm -hmm. was kind of, kind of coming in, yeah. um, that she's, you know, gets to experience because teachers have really, they're very resourceful people. That's mm -hmm. what I'm looking for. Like very, very resourceful. I'm trying to, be, to bring in stuff. I think there's also a much more, uh, positive feeling. I think that often teachers are subjected to, um, and you know, i been teaching for a very long time and I'm very engaged and sympathetic. I think teachers across the board are, are underpaid and undervalued and they're critical to making our culture work. Um, and I think that often because the complaining is what drives things, then you don't hear the, the good feelings that people have about their teachers. So I'd always thought that the complaints like, well, how, you know, if you ask somebody off the street, how's public education? Oh, it's a disaster. How's your school? It's actually really good. Yeah. And that, that that's kind of what you hear because of this. It's almost like a conspiracy thought in and of itself. The problem right. is large and elsewhere. Thank God my kid is getting through. Okay. One of the things, there's an article in EdSurge that talks about the South by Southwest panel um, and and uh, they say in the article, some on Twitter and in the audience took issue with the choice of those who were on the panel that she was part of. Uh, Anat Agwal, CEO of edX, founded by MIT and Harvard to offer MOOCs and other online courses. David Clayton, Senior VP of Consumer Insights at Strat Educational Network. 
Um, and Ben Wallerstein, CEO and finder of Whiteboard Advisors, a strategy and consulting firm that works with education companies. And then they quote someone, Kathleen Gorner, science coordinator at a school district in Kingwood, Texas. How do you have a panel without an educator yeah. on there? And yeah. that's that's kind of the that's kind of the key to it is, you know, and so if it's an issue that's interesting to you, that's a value to you, talk to teachers, see what their situation actually is. And if you do support them, let them know. I mean, I think that they often don't hear enough how important they are. Yeah, everybody's got problems and there's always conflicts and difficulty and things like that. And we're certainly culturally drifting toward making things even more difficult for them for financial reasons. And also because I think our culture is trying to rethink in some ways, what the position of education is. Um, one thing that was of, of some concern to me was there was a story that came out yesterday that at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, they're actually uh, uh, cutting a large number of their programs. They're cutting 13 programs, and they're mostly liberal arts programs. Um, they are... Um, let me see if I can find here what the what the list is. I mean, they're basically they're going to be putting an end to the English department. They're going to be putting an end to some of the the German department, a couple of the other, um, you know, th those sorts of things. They're trying to basically streamline higher education to be career track based. And, um, you know, so I, I think that that implies a way of thinking about education that I think most people wouldn't go along with. I think they I think that they actually have much stronger feelings and, and a much more articulate feelings about it. And it'd be really nice to have, you know, kind of a larger national conversation about that. Yeah. That would involve educators. You know, <laughs> that would be a positive thing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, uh, I couldn't agree with anything mm -hmm. or with anything more than what you just said. Yeah, sorry, I got in my little teacher soapbox thing there. No, no problem. Um, anything else that we want to talk about in our last few minutes? I, I do want to recognize uh, one of my favorite um, grown-up, adult, empowered people who actually contains within him a 14-year-old horror fan, and that's Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Uh, Guillermo del Toro and The Shape of Water did very well at the Academy Awards. I don't care about the Academy Awards, but I'm really happy that he got those awards because I think that, it, first of all, I think it's a fantastic film. And the score also won an Academy Award, uh, which is a beautiful score. And so I just wanted to, to take a moment to think about Guillermo and, and hope that in the future, and actually I was thinking that in a future episode, we should talk a little bit more about Guillermo del Toro because his previous films are really interesting. And the way he thinks about monsters and childhood and things like that, because all of his films are about, they're the, when you look across his career, they're about outcasts, and they are often about this combination of, of very old people and very young people interacting with each other, and he's just got an amazing magical sense for, for telling these stories that, that we should talk about. And then, of course, Jordan Peele, yeah. who won the uh, Best Original Screenplay Academy Award for Get Out. Um, which is also worth spending some time talking about at some point because it's a complex little film. And I think one of the things that's interesting about it is the attempt to sort of like define it as not a horror film, right? So it's, is it a comedy? Is it, it's like I heard the funniest thing, and it's actually more about Shape of Water, was somebody described the genre it's in as sea creature romance. <laughs> that's, that's really not a genre, but okay. <laughs> So anyway, well, and you're about to go see Black Panthers. And I am. That's yeah, I am finally. About. I am finally going to become 
part of the the the, the teeming millions who have uh, participated in the Black Panther. I'm very excited about it. Very What's the last Marvel it. movie that you've seen? I saw. Does Wonder Woman count? No, that's DC. No, it's DC. Oh gosh, it would have been. Uh, it was one of the weirdo Avenger films that I caught. Okay. In a replay on television that kind of threw Ant Man and everybody else in at the same time. Yeah. So it felt very much like Abbott and Costello meet Marvel. You know? <laughs> yeah. Scooby Doo meets Batman <laughs> yeah, and Robin. Right. I mean, exactly. Yeah. What about you? Um, I think the one, last one I saw was like Iron Man three or something. Uh-huh. It, it's been, it been at least. Oh gosh, not the maybe five years. I don't know when that the movie came out. Yeah, that that, uh, that I saw. Yeah, I'm I'm not a huge Superman a superhero fan. Excuse me, I should say, but I'm excited to see what you think about Black Panther. I well, I'm I'm excited to see it, and also excited to see the new season of Jessica Jones, which I think will be because it's a pretty amazing piece. Yeah. Worth, all worth right, some time on. There you go. That's Wait, all. is the world over? Did it end while we were here? I don't, has anyone left at the White House? Uh, let me see. Uh, according to my Twitter feed, no. Oh, okay. Well, I guess it's but, still here. But everybody wants to be there, <laughs> just so we know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Pleasure, Adam. Talk to you soon. Yep. Yeah.